All right, he is risen. I'm excited to be here every single week, but this week, this is a special week. And uh, I, I, I love this time of year. I don't know about you guys, but um, there's something about Easter. There's something about this time of year. Spring is here. Everything's beautiful in its own way. Flowers are blooming. New life seems to be everywhere, right? The air smells fresh, the birds are singing, the grass is green, the sun brings warmth. There's something very special about this time of year. And it launches into one of my favorite times of the year. Tammy will tell you, one of my favorite days of the year is when we change the clocks. I love that because it tells me spring is coming. Now, I love gardens. We have gardeners here. Anybody a gardener? Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I love gardens. I like going to gardens. I wouldn't plan a trip on my own normally, but once I'm there, I'm like, why don't I do this more? I love gardens. There's just something wonderful about a garden that you can visit and you don't have to work in, right? That's incredible. I hate working in gardens. I can't stand the thought of spending my free time digging in the dirt trying to get something to grow. Why would I create my own garden when there's so many other gardens out there I can go visit? God summed up my gardening experience in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistle it will bring forth to you. Tammy and I actually talked about growing a vegetable garden because I made the comment that I don't think in my life I've ever eaten anything that I actually grew myself. I've hunted them and not eaten and I've fished a lot. Now I can grow weeds and I can kill flowers. If I had to depend on what I grew to actually eat and survive, I'd be a total carnivore. But fortunately, there's other people more gifted than I am. There are some incredibly beautiful gardens around the world. Tammy and I once went to the tulip capital in Amsterdam. Incredible color. It's beautiful. I like to look at some of the most beautiful gardens in the world. I've performed weddings in gardens. Great place to celebrate new life beginning, beautiful surroundings that fit a beautiful moment. Every time I see a bride and groom in a garden, I think of Adam and Eve and God. Establishing God's plan for our spiritual oneness with him first and then with each other. Weddings just seem to fit in gardens. What I love about gardens is that they're so full of life and beauty and serenity. They can clear away the fog of a noisy day. They can clear your mind from all the techno stuff going on, all the trivia. Gardening somehow attunes us to life. It, it shows us renewal and richness and balance in the cycles, and we, we learn a lot in gardens. Going through the seasons shows us the cycle of life. Each plant going through its thriving, dying, seeding, fruiting, healthy, battling with disease. It's all right there in the garden. Through our gardens, we have the opportunity to have spiritual experiences rather than just on church Sunday. Sitting still, meditating, being in a garden can heighten your awareness of God. We often have a preference for special places to sit and pray. And the entire garden can be part of that process. Yet often God shows up at unexpected places and unexpected times. They're gifts from God. You don't know exactly when they're going to happen, but certain places allow you to calm your mind and listen for the voice of God. I think visiting gardens help us connect with God. 
slows us down. It, it forces us to align our new time and pace and become more aware of God and all that he's created and his plan. Psalm 23, we're all familiar with. God says this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Notice that the shepherd has to make us lay down in green pastures to lead us. He, he knows that in and of ourselves, we don't go to quiet waters. None of these come naturally to us as fallen sheep. We're busy chasing ourselves. But the shepherd makes us lay down. I strongly encourage you to seek out gardens when you can. They're, they're really an oasis in the spiritual desert. When I find myself in the process of feeling distant from God, I usually go to a garden and just hang out. Seems to restore my soul. So my mind goes to moments I've sat with God's word in gardens near water, and despite some incredible places, I have three favorite gardens. You may have your favorite garden as well. I, this week I decided to search and see if my gardens stack up to where everybody else, if they all agree on Google. Top 50 gardens of all time. Not one of my top three are there. Not even on the list. Greatest gardens in the world. No, not there. Top 10 gardens in literature? Nope, not there either. Greatest historical gardens. I'm a history person. There's gardens throughout history. Mine aren't even in there. I found Garden of the Gods. I found Boston Garden. I found the Garden of Cosmic Speculation. I don't recommend you go to that one. But since I'm a huge history buff, my favorite gardens are in places where key historical moments happen. I've actually visited two of them twice. They're incredible. They're the most important gardens in all of history. So I narrowed down my search. Historic Gardens Review. I didn't even know they had this. The voice of historic parks and gardens worldwide. An entire organization to look at gardens where major events have occurred. Apparently my view of important historical events does not resonate with them. I searched most important gardens in all of human history and history of gardens, a timeline from ancient to present, none of them mention any one of my three. Every historical importance of mine don't even make the list, not even at the bottom. I guess I have unique tastes. Now you may be wondering, what do gardens have to do with Easter? Or anything church related for that matter? I'm glad you're asking. Glad you're here. Because the Easter story can't be told unless you know the story of my three favorite gardens. Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. Easter story really started way back in the Garden of Eden. It crescendos in the Garden of Gethsemane and it drops a love bomb at the Garden Tomb. To me, gardens are all about life. I don't think it's a coincidence that God placed Adam and Eve in a garden. New human life belongs in a garden. Gardens are all about new, fresh beginnings, beautiful things, and a celebration of God through his creation. Let's look at some key Easter events. I want to look at the first garden, the Garden of Eden. The Easter story actually believes or begins back in Genesis 2. Then the Lord formed the man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees, life, knowledge of garden, uh, good and evil, we'll come back to that. So why did God put man in the garden? Well, what was his purpose? Uh, God said, I created you in my image, but what was his purpose in the garden? Well, Genesis, God tells us, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Hmm. The garden of Eden was actually a wonderful place until Adam and Eve began to work it, to reject God's way and make themselves their own God. It had been a place of wonder and security, and it became now a place of death and fear, guilt and shame. Genesis 3.8, and then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just think about that for a minute. Anyway, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. The Lord called to the man and said, where are you? That wasn't a physical question, by the way. It's a question of where did you go spiritually? We were so tight. We were so together. Where did you go? Where are you? Do you know where you now are? Do you know how far you've moved from me through your disobedience? Do you understand where you are, Adam? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. And he should be. And I was naked and I hid myself. After that, God brought forth the punishment for our sins. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts in the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise or crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Even in the midst of man's fall, God was beginning to tell the Easter story. The story of one who would come, an offspring of Eve, a human who would destroy Satan and restore all that was lost in the first garden. Gardens are places of life. And yet Adam and Eve brought death into what God had made perfect. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore... The Lord sent him out of the garden, out of the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man in the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Two trees in the garden. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was God's intent that we never learn good and evil, because there was nothing evil in us. But if we chose evil, and were then destined to death, and then were able to eat from the tree of life, nothing could ever change. So God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden to keep them from eating from the tree of life until it was safe to do so. One day you and I and every believer in the world will eat from the tree of life. It's incredible when you think about it. So death, now the destiny of every human born, God drives man out of the garden east of Eden. Now we go forward to the next garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Visited there twice. Do you know what this place was? It was a place that Jesus would often go to to connect to the Father, to pray, to recharge. It was familiar to Jesus and his disciples. 
This garden is just at the base of the Mount of Olives. It's along a path that Jesus used when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Less than half a mile walk from the temple. It's not just any garden, though. It's full of olive trees. It's known as an olive garden. I love olive trees because they have the branches at the bottom. They look anguished. And I can just picture Jesus praying that night among these trunks that were just wrapped up. But they used olive trees for everything. Olive oil for everything, from anointing to heating lamps to cooking. Oil was put in a press and literally pressed down three times to get the oil to squeeze, to get them out. Then Jesus, at the base of the olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified, is pressed three times by the Father. God, let this cup come from me. Don't make me drink this cup. Do you remember the cup? It's the cup of suffering that we looked at Friday. God, don't make me drink the cup of suffering. Jesus was basically asking the questions that so many people ask. How could Jesus be the only way? He himself asked that question in the garden. Father, is there any other way? Is there anybody else? Is there any other thing that we could do to save the people we love? God, please don't make me go through this. Find another way. God didn't say, oh, well, you don't know? Muhammad's coming. He's going to fix everything. Or Buddha. Or Scientology. You don't need to go to the cross, Jesus, because I got this figured out. I'll come up with something else. No. God said, if you want to save the people we love, this is the only way. There's no other way. So Jesus, pressed three times in the garden, develops a resolve full of anointing, full of, full of awareness, healing, and he's going to be the light of the world. This is where the spiritual struggle of life and death foretold by God in the Garden of Eden actually begins to play out. It's essentially Satan's last stand. It's one of his defining moments. Just as God promised in Adam and Eve one day, a descendant of the Messiah is going to crush Satan's head. And it's at the cross that that gets accomplished. Once Satan failed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was crushed. And Jesus chose to drink from the cup of suffering presented to him by the Father so that Satan would no longer have a hold on us and death would no longer bind us. It's in this garden that God soaked in the Father, Jesus soaked in the Father's presence, relied on the Father's strength, and through surrender found the Father's peace. Then the story transitions to another garden, the garden tomb. Now it's interesting that we associate the garden with the tomb of Jesus, but did you know Jesus was crucified in a garden? Hmm. That the cross was actually in a garden, just above. John 19, 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. If you go to Israel today, there's Golgotha, the skull. It's obvious. It's a mountain. It looks like a skull. Odd, at the bottom of that is a garden. 
They didn't know that until they started digging through a, a waste pile, a garbage dump, and they found this incredible garden. And guess what's in the garden? A tomb, just like the Bible says. Throughout Scripture, the story is told of life that begins in the Garden of Eden, a life lived by the Spirit, but lived in the flesh. Then sin came and God left, and we were left in our flesh to try to figure out the world on our own. When Jesus came back, he brought the Spirit of God back to us. But in order for us to accept the Spirit of God, we had to surrender our flesh to die. We had to give up ourselves. I say it all the time. Everybody says, what do you preach about? I say, it's the same thing every week. It never changes. Surrender. Eat your pride and surrender. Every sermon, if you go back and look at them, they say the exact same thing. Stop chasing yourself. Stop chasing your arrogance. Eat your pride. Surrender to Jesus. Let him be not only your Savior, but Lord of your life. The price for our flesh is Jesus taking the punishment for us on the cross. The Bible's very clear. We're not here today because we believe some philosophy about how to live our lives. We're not here today because we believe the Ten Commandments are the key to pleasing God, and if we do them well enough, He'll grade on a curve. We're not here to perform our way into God's top part of the class. We're not here today because we're special or sinless or even good people. We are seriously messed up. We're not here today because we have good moral standards. We don't, often. We're here today, we call ourselves Christians today, not because we follow a series of religious beliefs, but because we believe in a moment in human history. On Friday afternoon, a day in history, just like Pearl Harbor, just like 9-11, there was a day in history when a very real man, who was also a very real God, went to the cross. And he took our place. And because of that, God had to pour out his wrath on himself for all the sins of the world. And then on Sunday morning, that Sunday morning, that God-man walked out of his own tomb. And on that day, death died for everybody who believed in him. The punishment of death paid people to be free if they trust in Jesus. We don't perform our way into salvation. We can't. We're so far from any standard of holiness or righteousness, it's a joke to think that we got it. It's like bragging that you're a drummer on the dance band in the Titanic. <laughs> we can't pay our way into salvation. God already has everything. We don't think our way in salvation. It's not a matter of intellect or knowledge. It's a matter of your heart. We surrender our way into salvation. We kill our pride along the way. You see, we're saved from death because we believe from our hearts that Jesus is God, that he came to earth, that we are sinners, no hope of saving ourselves. We deserve God's punishment, but on a Friday, a very real Friday in a very real place, he not only died in our place, but he suffered for our sins. He was sinless, but he took the place that you and I deserve. God punished him instead of us. We didn't die, he died for us. And on that Sunday, he rose to save us. It's not a religion, it's a historical fact. A true moment in history, and it changed everything. 
We started in a garden. Jesus surrendered in a garden. He's crucified in a garden. And he's resurrected in a garden. All, by the way, will celebrate his return. Guess where? In a garden. Revelation 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. You see, gardens bring new life, new hope, new peace. That which was dead becomes awake and alive with beauty. What better place to host the greatest story of life, hope, and peace? So it's not surprising that when Jesus resurrected full of life, celebrating what God has done, his first steps out of the tomb were into a garden. New life. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, day of first fruits, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene. We know little about this woman other than her name indicates that she was from Magdala in Galilee, which is across the Sea of Galilee from Jesus' home. Somewhere in Galilee she met Jesus. And Jesus cast seven demons from her. Imagine what she was like when he met her. I tell people all the time, we're going to have people come through these doors that are struggling in a spiritual battle. It's hard work. Jesus met Mary Magdalene. She had seven demons. She joined the band of followers and followed Jesus wherever he went. Luke 8.1. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. Seven, by the way. Perfect number in the Bible. She was completely demonic when Jesus met her. That's who we're talking about. That's the person that's first to the grave. On Friday, Jesus was left on the burial preparation bench in receiving room of the tomb chamber. The way that works is you go into this tomb, there's a table sort of stone place laid out where they would prepare the body, and then once they have the body prepared, they would move it deeper into the the uh, the tomb and then after a year or two or however long the body would be bones they take the bones out and the tomb would get reused prophets said jesus would be in a new tomb and some tombs were basically uh, found and used like caves but the rich people had theirs carved out so jesus is in a rich tomb that's actually carved out with human hands hmm Rolling stone tubes were meant to be open and closed. That's why they had the wheel in front. You could go in and you could go out. Other family members could be buried in the same tomb. It happened a lot. The synoptics, the gospels, record the woman's anxiety on their way to the tomb about who's going to move the heavy stone. It's Mary who first comes to the tomb. Love is really all she has to bring. She doesn't know what else to do. She had sinned much. She knew it. And Jesus had done for her what no one else could do. She went from perfectly demonic to a sound mind. He had forgiven and cleansed her, so she comes in darkness sometime around 3 o'clock in the morning, only to discover that something's happened. The stone has been removed. 
She references they, which is likely the temple authorities. You see, Jesus' opponents, she was afraid, had done something else to him. Mary's discovery that the tomb had been rolled to one side immediately told her someone had entered the tomb. Perhaps someone came that night, or maybe they were in there right now. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. John says that she was the first among those women to discover the empty tomb, the first to report it to the disciples, and the first to see the risen Christ. Other Gospels tell that she was not the only woman that came to the tomb that morning. At least three other women accompanied her. Mary was the one who ran back and told the disciples about the empty tomb. With breathless urgency, she runs to tell this horrible news to Peter, still the leader, even though he was weak. He just denied, he's still the leader. She runs to him. And she runs to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. So Peter went with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that. I gotcha. Of course, the younger one is John. He outran Peter. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. So Peter went out and with the other disciple, they were going to the tomb. Now, you know, when Peter gets there, he's going in. That's just Peter. But John's the youngest disciple. The fact that they responded quickly and ran to the tomb says they had nothing to do with it. A lot of people were arguing that they must have taken the body and hid it. They ran to the tomb. They were freaked out as well. You see, they were concerned that there might have been a conspiracy. Note the detail here. John went to the tomb first, looked in, but did not go in. He stooped, looked in, and saw the linen but he didn't enter, either because he was afraid or because he thought it was appropriate that an older apostle go first or go with him. You see, we forget, John was probably about 15 years old when he was a disciple, maybe 16. He was the youngest. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Now I love that John is writing this and he keeps giving it to Peter. He was following me, see I was already there I waited and eventually he showed up because I outran him. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth but folded up in a place by itself. Look at the detail in this story. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. That's John. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The scene then is not chaotic and it's not confused. Something purposeful has happened here. If someone had stolen Jesus' body, the, the stuff would have been strewn all over the place. This is the, the linens are there, his body's gone. Clothes are undisturbed. He simply left them behind. John 20, 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She stayed there. Other disciples went home. She stays outside the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
He said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Incredible symbolism here. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, resurrected between two angels. Testimony to God's liberating action in all of our lives. This is one of the few places in the Bible where someone encounters angels and they're not stricken with fear. It shows Mary's so grieved at the loss of Jesus, she doesn't care what shows up. Even angels. No description is given of the angels. When the angels appear in the Bible, they're usually recognized by their powers rather than any significant difference of human form. Mary didn't respond to them in an unusual way, possibly because her eyes were clouded with tears because she was preoccupied with the loss of Jesus' body. I can tell you, people in shock don't see or hear anything. Mary's frustrated. She just wanted to pay her last respects to the man who changed her life. They've killed her Savior. She watched it. She was there at the cross. She stayed there at the cross. Other disciples were hiding. She was at the cross. Mary was sure the body had been violated as well. Leaders often did this to punish presumed kings. They parade their body in the street or they hang them from the town square. Or they put their heads on a post. She's imagining the worst thing possible could happen to her Savior. And being Jewish, she's particularly concerned. Proper burial was regarded by Jews as an inherent part of their faith. If they weren't buried correctly, horrible things could happen in their perspective. The thought of resurrection never crossed her mind. No big surprise there. No one's ever done that before. This day changes everything. Mary wasn't wishing for a resurrection and then hopefully imagined it. She had no thought of resurrection yet. She really thought somebody had stolen his corpse. She's freaking out and the angels ask her what seems to be a really stupid question. Why are you crying? They don't address the missing body. What they try to do is show Mary that sorrow is not what this moment requires. Mary's so messed up that she missed the fact that there are angels in the tomb. She missed the obvious. Angels don't hang out with thieves. Angels don't hang out with grave robbers. This tomb is no longer in the hands of humans. It's now holy ground in the hands of God. That's why the angels are there. So that stage enveloped the mystery of God. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? There it is again. Why are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Incredible questions. At the very beginning, death came to the human race in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Now life is coming back in a new garden. And Jesus is indeed the gardener. There's that question, why are you weeping? She had to be thinking, why am I weeping? What's the matter with you guys? They've taken the body of my Savior away. They're probably torturing him, killing him. He may be dragged through the streets. They want to humiliate him on a high holy day. 
Then, as always, Jesus moves to the deeper question, the question that cuts to the essence of the moment. Who is it that you're looking for? Who are you seeking? She assumed this stranger must have been involved in taking his body to a permanent grave. She asked if she could have the body back to care for it. Just a small way she might be able to show her love to the man who changed her life. Mary's response to both the angels and the gardener are the same with one exception. In the first case, she gives the visitors reason for weeping. She doesn't know where they have put the stolen body. In the second case, she pleads with the gardener, if you've taken the body, just tell me where it is. Her mind is focused on the problem of the tomb. There is a dead man there and it's empty. Jesus is trying to lift her to see something higher, to go to a deeper place, to understand not the physical moment, but the spiritual moment that's happening. Jesus and the angels are trying to help Mary understand that the whole world has now changed. What happened this morning changes everything. Where his body is is really not important anymore. No one would ever again, after the next 40 days, seek Jesus and his body. Something spiritual was happening. From this moment on, everybody who knew Jesus in the flesh, he would now present himself to Mary and to every other person in the Spirit. The movement that God is bringing on this Sunday morning is a spiritual movement. And again, this day changed everything. Jesus points her in another direction. The reality of meeting him is more important than the riddle of the tomb. See, this is symbolic of us. Don't miss this. We try to figure out in our mind what's happening and Jesus is trying to take us to the relationship. You may never understand what happened in the tomb. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you come to me. Understanding everything is not the most important thing. It's relationship. It doesn't matter what happened to Jesus' body. He wants Mary to connect with his heart. To recognize him from her heart. To quit trying to figure him out with the brain and connect with the heart. And that's exactly what happens. Supposing him to be the gardener. Remember I tell you all the time nothing's in the Bible by accident. The story of God started in a garden and God himself was the gardener. The Lord played, planted the garden in Eden in the east and there he put man who he formed. Who was the caretaker of the Garden of Eden? We looked at it before. The first Adam. Adam was the caretaker of the garden. God breathed life to him and gave him the assignment of caring for the physical garden that's in the Garden of Eden. Until, of course, he sinned. Now the second Adam, Jesus, has breathed spiritual life into man, and he now has the assignment of nurturing and growing his new family of believers. That's why this day is called First Fruits. Something different is happening. There's a spiritual world being built by Jesus. He's the gardener. God told the exiles from Judah, I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Jesus is the gardener of this new spiritual Eden, doing what Adam could not do. 
His resurrection broke ground in this garden, making the beginning of a massive restoration project. Jesus plants us and grows us. He gets his hands dirty in the soil of our lives. He brings us to life and cultivating us so we flourish. He even tells a parable about how, just give him one more year, I'll fertilize the ground. I'll give him a chance to grow. Supposing him to be the gardener. Why? Because he is. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. You see, she's been trying to connect with him with, his head, with her head. Took one word to connect from the heart. The risen Christ speaks her name tenderly, but with all the authority of one who's conquered death. The shepherd calling one of his sheep. She knows that voice. She could never forget that voice. Only one thing was necessary for Jesus to reveal himself to her. Just him uttering her name. One of the strange things about life is that some of the most penetrating utterances we can understand is our own name. Furthermore, the way it's spoken identifies the speaker. My mother says my name like no other person. My father did the same. Something about our name, very personal, very heartfelt. Then she turned to him. Note that. Every word's important. She turned. She has to change directions. She's focusing on the tomb and the fact that it's empty. And he's like, no, you've got to turn. What's happening here is spiritual turn. See it. It's in this moment she goes from grief to joy, from death to life, from despair to total wonder. In adoration and wonder, she falls at his feet and says, Adonai, Rabbani. This is the one title that's given to Jesus at the beginning of faith, Rabbani. One word. Now her heart's connected. What Mary experiences here is the first post-resurrection gospel presentation. Jesus reveals himself to her heart, and now she has to decide how to respond. Same things happen to every believer since this moment in history. This is significant. Jesus calls us. He reveals himself to each one of us. Personally, intimately, we recognize the voice. But we have to turn. We have to turn from our head to our heart. We have to turn towards him, towards his plan for us, his path for us. We have to respond when Jesus calls our name. We turn from our pride and our plans, and there's that word, surrender his love and his plans for us. From this day forward, every person is going to have to decide what to do when Jesus calls their name. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Why didn't Jesus want Mary to touch him? I think there's two reasons. First, he's the first fruit. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
the first fruit has to be presented to the Father to be accepted. It can't be touched or messed with. So that's part of it. But the other thing he wants her to see is what's going to happen in the future is not you physically clinging to me. No one in the future is going to physically cling to me. You see, I'm now spiritual. No one's going to look for me in human form anymore. There's a new day. This day changed everything. He would be present in human form for about 50, 40 more days, actually. But after that moment, no one would ever again embrace Jesus as human. Everyone's relationship with him would soon become spiritual. So she tries to cling to him. It's all she knows to do. Please don't go again. I thought I'd never see you again. Mary's trying to grasp Jesus as he was before the crucifixion. She doesn't yet understand that everything's changed. You see, she knows him living as a human with all the human limitations. But Jesus is beginning to reveal to her that everything is different now. In his resurrection, Jesus has not only broken the bonds of sin and death, but also the limitations of space and time and the weaknesses of living as a human. By the power of God, he's wrought a new creation, a new order, a new covenant to the people of God. When he told Mary to stop clinging to him, he was saying so much more than just don't touch. He's telling her and us that we can't hold on to Jesus in the flesh any more than we can hold on to our own flesh and follow Jesus. The world has completely changed on this historic day. Spirit of God lost in the garden has now been brought back to a garden. It's the spirit of God that we have to respond to. We either surrender and follow or we ignore. Everyone was about to understand what this new relationship would work, that Jesus was going to come to each one of us spiritually. That our flesh, our sin, our desire to be our own God is dying and he's offering us new life. Mary is now told to go to the brothers, not the disciples. Notice that. He put the disciples in a new relationship with him. Now that the sin issue has been taken care of, there's a new relationship for those who believe. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all part of God's family. Jesus gives Mary an assignment. You can't stay here and cling to me. There's so much. This is so powerful. You can't stay here and cling to me. You have to go tell others what you've seen. This isn't just about you. There's a world of people that need to know what you've seen. You see, Mary, I'm making you the very first evangelist. And no Christian in the future can stay here and just cling to me. Frozen, chosen behind stained glass. No. Every Christian is told to go out into the world and tell them what you've experienced. From this moment forward, Jesus would say the same thing to every new believer. Don't just cling to me. Go tell the world what I've done for you. The first evangelist in the Bible is a woman. Don't miss that. Mary Magdalene. And you know I love foreshadowing in the Bible. I love it when God does something and then you realize when you study something else that he was trying to show you just a glimpse of what was about to happen. Does this remind you of anything in the Bible? Remember the woman at the well? She had a checkered past. She had a bunch of husbands. 
She met Jesus. Mary Magdalene had a ton of demons. She met Jesus. They connected with him in their heart. And immediately, she had to go tell others she found the Messiah. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Just like the Samaritan woman, Mary would have a hard time getting people to trust what she says. In Jewish cultures, women's testimonies weren't accepted. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. She's not talking about with her eyes either. And that he said these things to her. Watch the response of the disciples. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they didn't believe them. The first time the gospel is presented, it is rejected. It happens. It's hard to believe. Could he have died and resurrected? Think about how incredible this is. The first evangelist on earth was a woman, and the very first people to hear the gospel said no. The very first time the gospel was shared with humans, they said no, and they were his disciples. So guess what they had to do? They had to run to the tomb again. They had to figure this out. They had to figure out what they were going to do. The fact that Jesus makes a woman the first witness of his resurrection is incredibly powerful. The law courts of that day would not even allow them to recognize the testimony of a woman. Jesus did. It also argues for the historical truth of this account. If this was a made-up story, there's not a Jewish man on the planet that would suggest that when Jesus came back, the first person he went to look for or the first person that saw him was a woman. Everyone who first hears the truth about Jesus wonders if it's too good to be true. Could he still love me after all that I've done? You see, many of us never put ourselves in the solitude of a garden to actually hear from our hearts the voice of the Lord. We're too busy. We don't stop and listen. He, he wants us to sit beside still waters. He wants us to hear his voice with our hearts, but we're too busy racing our minds all over the place doing something that's important, whatever that is. So we have three gardens, my favorite gardens, places where seeds are planted and new life springs eternal. 1,992 years ago, Jesus walked out of a tomb and out of one of those gardens. Three gardens, places where seeds are planted. On that historic day, everything changed. Physical life began in a garden, and then on that Sunday morning, the Feast of First Fruits, Easter Sunday, spiritual life returned to the garden, and the world would never again be the same. Why are we here? That's why. First evangelist was Mary Magdalene. She's the first to hear the voice of Jesus with her heart. Every day since that moment, millions of people have heard that soft, loving, inviting voice of Jesus because they turned off their brains long enough to seek what their hearts desired. Can you hear him? He's always there. He's always calling you deeper.
We hear him with our hearts. He calls our name and he draws us to respond. Just like he told the disciples, come, follow me. He calls us every day, come, let's go deeper. Sometimes the best place to hear the quiet voice is solitude in a garden. Can I just give you another reason to go to a garden and listen for God? Satan has never had a good moment in a garden. Think about it. Satan has never had a good moment in a garden. Jesus is calling your name this morning. Either inviting you to join him or inviting you to go deeper. I don't know which. But when he says our name, there's a question at the end of it. Do you trust me? Can you stop chasing your world long enough to chase mine? Can you turn off your brain just long enough to chase me with all your heart? If you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. Will you go deeper with me? Will you turn towards me or are you just going to keep going away? This could be the day that changes everything for you. How do I know? 26 years ago, I was as far from God as anybody could be. I walked into a church on Easter Sunday and I heard the voice and came home. My prayer is that this will be your day. Do you hear him? The altar is going to be open and we're going to have a moment to listen to God. I encourage you to move out of your seat to the altar. Just go to a different place. Allow God to do what he wants to do in your heart this day because this day changes everything. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the gardens. I thank you that you loved us enough to connect us with our hearts. I thank you, God, that you know each of our names. And when we get to heaven, you will replace our names with new names. But God, right now, we need to go deeper. We walked into this room, God, please don't leave us where we were when we walked in. Not on this day. We need to put aside the things of the world and move to a deeper place with you. So Father, in this moment, Spirit, work in this room. Let us get over our inhibitions, get over our fears of what others think, and let's just get on our faces and seek you this day. Holy Spirit, pour out yourself in this room. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name. 